Good morning, Reliance Church. Hey, I'm Pastor Ted, one of the pastors here, if you're new to the church, and we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 6. This morning, if you want to open your Bibles there, 2 Samuel chapter 6. I've got a lot of ground to cover, so as you turn in there, I'm just going to jump right into it. The title of the message today is Raiders of the Lost Ark. And no doubt you've all seen the movie. If you haven't, I'm going to spoil it for you. The big idea is the Germans are searching for the Ark of the Covenant And uh, they believe that the army that marches behind the Ark of the Covenant is invincible. They see it as a great massive tool for war. And uh, and so they're hunting for it. And Indiana Jones comes along and saves the day. There you go. That's the, the big overreaching idea. Well, in real life, there is such a thing as the Ark of the Covenant. It is absolutely real. Uh, And it is an awesome weapon of war, but it is not in the way that Hollywood uh, portrays it. What we're going to do today is we're going to see David making an excursion to actually obtain the ark, the raider of the lost ark. And we're going to see him do this, and we're going to see what makes the ark so important, what motivated David to seek it, Uh, and why it should matter to you and me today. We're going to look at five things today. We're going to look at David's motive. We're going to look at David's method. We're going to look at David's mistake. uh, And we're going to look at David's music and David's misses. All right, the last two points we're going to skip through really quickly. Let's start off right away. David's motive, 2 Samuel chapter 6. It says, again, David gathered all of the choice men of Israel 30,000. He has gathered these men before. When the Philistines were attacking, David gathered his men together, went out, fought, and, and repelled the enemy. And so here he is again. He's gathering all the choice men of Israel. 30,000 and, verse 2, David arose, and he went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, which is also known as Kiriath-Jerim. Uh, they're synonymous places, and that's going to be important as we continue. So he went uh, from there to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. These cherubim are, are winged angelic beings. Uh, they, uh, they're uh, on the, the top of the ark, and, uh, and so this is, this is the idea. David is now on the throne of Israel. And God is blessing his socks off. And, and it's been a long time coming, you know. The, the, the psalmist, David himself, would pen, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Uh, and, and the idea there is, you know, you, you, how do you taste something? You actually got to ingest it. You have to partake of it. You know, somebody says, Hey, you know, I got some rattlesnake here for you. And you're like... What's it taste like? Oh, it tastes like chicken. Everything tastes like chicken, right? And so what are they doing? They're liking it to something that you've had. I don't know about you. When, I, when Brenda and I will go out to dinner, I am a creature of habit. How many creatures of habit here? When you, you guys are the smart ones, all right? My wife, she's adventurous. She's like, I'm going to try something new. I'm like, I'm not going to try something new. Why? Because I've found what I like and I'm sticking with it. And I don't want to be disappointed because then what happens is I, when, I, when I get adventuresome and I order something I haven't had before, the whole time I'm thinking, I wish I would have ordered, you know, what it was I like. And then all of a sudden the thing comes out and I take my first bite and I'm like, oh, I should have ordered the thing that I like, you know. And so I, I'm that way. Taste and see, I've tasted and seen what's good, you know. 
So, so this is David. He has tasted and seen that the Lord is good. He has certainly tasted of the Lord's goodness. God has protected him. He's empowered him. He's given him victory on every side. And what's happening here is that David has unified the nation politically. At, at long last, all the tribes have come together, all the tribes of Israel. And they're all unified, and it's a beautiful thing. And now the great desire of David's heart, David's motive, he wants to unify the nation spiritually. And so what he intends to do is to go get the ark to accomplish that. Now, the ark here, we're going to see in the text, it's mentioned 15 times in the first 17 verses. And and the key verse is in verse 9, which we'll get to eventually. But David asks in the latter part of that verse, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? And this is the crux of the whole thing. Now, to understand why this is important, uh, you need to understand what the ark is and and what the whole idea is behind the ark of the covenant. And so the ark of the covenant was a box that God had instructed the Israelites to make in Exodus 25. Put on the screen for you. He said, have the people make an ark of acacia wood, a sacred chest, 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, and 27 inches high. Uh, God instructed Moses then to overlay this ark of, of cedar wood, uh, with, or of acacia wood rather, uh, with pure gold. And, and to make a cover on the top also to be overlaid with pure gold. And, and there on the top of it, it had the two cherubim, these winged angelic beings on either side. And created there in the middle uh, a seat in the center. And it was, this was called the mercy seat. And this mercy seat, this is the place where the high priest would sprinkle blood seven times on the day of atonement. Uh, Again, Exodus 25 says, And there, God speaking, I will meet with you at the mercy seat, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two uh, cherubim, which which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of God. So the ark was the centerpiece of Israel's worship. It embodied the very presence of God. But at this moment in time, when David has brought the nation all together and now they're unified politically, they are not unified spiritually because the ark is not the centerpiece of their worship. See, because the ark at this moment in time has, is sitting in a field in Kirjath-Jerim, and it's been sitting there for 70 years. Here's the history, and if you've been with us going through 1 Samuel, you'll recall that in 1 Samuel chapter 4, we saw the collapse of the house of Eli. And, and during that time, the Ark of the Covenant was captured. See, in, in the, the, the defeat of the Israelites, instead of turning to the Lord, they turned to an empty shell of religion. And so what they did is they said, oh, we're, we're being defeated by our enemies. Let's grab the ark. Let's bring the ark with us. That'll empower us. And, and, and so what happened was, and their problem was, is that they were looking to the ark as an it and not a he. Because what the ark is, is the presence of God. It's a he. But they were looking to the ark as, you know, kind of like a, a lucky rabbit's foot or, or just, you know, being that thing that, you know, is their token of, of, of power. 
It once represented the presence of God where the priest would meet to inquire of the people and for God's will for his people and the, the, the sprinkling of the blood, which is so significant. We in the New Testament church understand this is a, a picture of Christ. And so it was once all of that, but now it's like a genie in a bottle. Now it's like a good luck charm. It, it's not unlike, you know, a, a, a St. Christopher medal on steroids. This is how they're referring to it. If you grew up in the Catholic Church, as I did, the the St. Christopher Medal, St. Christopher is the patron saint of travelers, you know, and so people will take that that St. Christopher's Medal, they'll put it, you know, hang it on their rearview mirror of their cars or whatever, and and they look to it, not unlike the, the Israelites were looking to the ark, it becomes the object of their focus and of their trust and so on, they're trusting in an it, not in a in a he, and I could go off on a, on a tangent of, on that, uh, and, uh, and I, I would just suffice it to say this, that, you know, it's an unbiblical practice the, to, to, to take anyone and say, I'm going to pray to St. Christopher uh, to protect me as I'm traveling. Look, the Bible cautions against praying to the dead, and, and we, are, we are not to do that. We're not to pray to the dead. We pray to a living God. God, whoever lives, as Pastor Mike said during his prayer time up here, he, he, he died on the cross for our sins in our place. He rose again on the third day, and he ascended into heaven. And the Bible makes it very clear, Romans chapter 8, saying that that's where Jesus ever lives to make intercession for the saints. That right now on the throne of God, Jesus is praying for you by name. And we pray to a living God. Well, the Israelites, they... They stopped looking to a he, they were looking to an it, and so God allowed them to be defeated. And, and he allowed the ark to be taken captive. And chapter 4 of 1 Samuel ends with the sad conclusion that Elvis has left the building, that the glory of God has departed from Israel. Now, the Philistines, they, they took the ark. The Israelites went in, they're looking to the ark, and God's like, you're going to look to the ark that way, then you're going to lose it. And so they captured the ark. They took the ark. And, and God cursed them with boils and with tumors. And it got to the place, they're like, we got to get hot potato, man. We got to get rid of this thing. And so what they ended up doing is they throw it on a cart and they return it to the Israelites. And, and so when this happens, the ark winds up in the field of Beth Shemesh. And what we read there is that the Israelites, they, they're worshiping and the ark has come back and so on. But the men of Beth Shemesh made a grave mistake. They went to the ark and they went past the mercy seat. They bypassed the mercy seat. They opened it up. They wanted to check the contents. No doubt, they're like, hey, have the Philistines opened this, this thing up and taken you know, the precious contents out. And so they bypassed, they make the, the mistake of, opening this, this, this ark and looking into it, and God killed them on the spot. He killed them on the spot. And here's what you need to understand. This is key to understanding 2 Samuel chapter 6, is that the ark is a picture of Jesus Christ. The ark is a picture of Jesus Christ. The, the, the ark of the covenant made of acacia wood, covered with gold, symbolizing that Jesus Christ is fully man, and fully God. Inside the, this, this Ark of the Covenant were the two, two stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. There's a couple of other items in there, but the law was in there. God's righteous standard. And on the outside of the box, on the lid, 
it, it served as a barrier between man and God. And what is this, this, this mediator between man and God? It's the mercy seat. This is the only place that God will meet with his people. And because our lives, your life, my life, does not meet the righteous requirements of the law, God can't meet us apart from Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you have the, the misguided attitude <coughs> that, if you leave, that if you live a moral life, if you lead a moral life, that God's going to grade you on some sort of scale of, you know, hey, you're, 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 you're okay compared to, you know, everybody else. I'm not a mass murderer. I'm not, you know, I'm not a drug addict. I'm a basically, I'm a decent person. Uh, and, and if, you know, you were to answer the question, how do you know you're going to heaven? You'd say, oh, I'm basically a good person. I live by the Ten Commandments. I live according to the law. You've heard me say this often, liar. You don't even know the Ten Commandments. You know, and, and, and so, and even if you did, it wouldn't help you. And that's what these men of Beth Shemesh, they made this grave mistake because they wanted to bypass the mercy of Jesus Christ, bypass the mercy seat. And of course, Jesus hadn't yet come to atone for the sins of all mankind, but this is a picture of Christ looking forward to him, God conditioning his people that it's by his mercy, it's by his grace that you're made right. The Bible says all have sinned fall short of the glory of God, and that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And, and if you believe in your heart that Jesus is the Christ, if you confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, the Bible says that you will be saved. Maybe today here you have not done that. Maybe today you have lived a life where you try and just bypass the mercy seat and go directly to the contents of the ark. I, I feel like I can go just you know right to God bypassing Jesus Listen, you're gravely mistaken. Hey, I can, I, I can live a moral life. I can be counted right with God by just, you know, being a good person. Can't happen. My wife and I were at Walmart a couple of weeks ago, and there was a guy out there who's just asking for money. And normally I don't give money to people because, you know, they're going to take him by drugs or booze or whatever. But the Lord just laid it on my heart to give him something, you know. And so I went back and I... And I'm giving him the gospel, you know, and I gave him, you know, some money, but I'm giving him the gospel. And I asked him, how, how do you know you're going to heaven? And, and, and he says, oh, you know, I, I live a good life. His t-shirt says, I love beer, you know. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and he's, he's like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a good person. And I said, friend, the, the Bible says there's none good. There's none righteous. No, not one. And, and, and I gave him the gospel. And the, the fact of the matter is, is that this is key. We under, need to understand the only place God will meet with his people is at the mercy seat of Christ. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. And as long as the mercy seat is in place, because you cannot keep the law, as long as the mercy seat is in place between you and the law, you can meet together with God. Hebrews chapter 4 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are. He was fully man, yet without sin. He was fully God. And therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Well, after God killed the men of Beth Shemesh for, for bypassing the mercy seat, 
They sent the ark away. They sent it to Kirith-Jerim, to the house of Abinadab, and they charged his son, Eleazar, with the responsibility to keep the ark. And so this is where that ark has been sitting now for 70 years. David now comes to the throne. David has united the nation politically. He understands that it is God's desire that the ark be the center of their worship. God's desire for you and me is that Jesus Christ would be the center of our worship. And so David has it on his heart. <coughs> Excuse me, we're going to see it in the next chapter. That, you know, and we saw it in the last chapter that he moves into the area and the king of Tyre builds him this beautiful house of cedar. And David's going to profess in the next chapter, you know, how can I live in a house of cedar when, when my God is dwelling in a field? Now, David didn't literally think that, that's, that God was dwelling in the field, but he understood. Hey, the ark is the very presence of God. And it's to be the center of our worship, and it needs to have a place of worship. And what David has done, evidently, is that he's erected a tabernacle for God there in Jerusalem. It's not the temple. He's going to build the temple coming up. But, but at this moment, he's, he's set apart a place, a tabernacle, where God will be worshipped. And he wants to have that ark be there in the center of their worship. This is his desire. And this is his longing. His motive is right and good. He wants the presence of God. And he understood that this was God's will. Well, that brings us to David's method, 2 Samuel 6, pick it up in verse 3. It says, so they set the ark of God on a new cart. Man, there's nothing like a new cart, isn't there? It's got that new cart smell. It's just, and they set it on a new cart, and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah, and Ohio, Ohio, the, the sons of Abinadab drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ohio went before the ark. And then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments, uh, on, uh, of firwood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on uh, sistrums, and on cymbals. So you can picture the scene there. I mean, he's got 30,000 men together. He's got, it's, this is just this great and glorious thing, and we are going to take the ark of God, the very presence of God. We're going to bring it in Jerusalem. We're going to set it as the center of our worship. And there's praise, and there's glory, and it's a huge celebration, and everything's going, and it's awesome. And they bring it out, and they're doing this, and verse 6 says, and when they came to Nacon's threshing floor. Nacon means to be smitten, right? And a threshing floor, this is a place where you separate the wheat from the chaff. And this is what God's about to do, to be smitten, to strike and to separate the wheat from the chaff. And so there's this party and everything's going on and we're worshiping, we're bringing the ark and this is awesome. And they come to Nacon's threshing floor and Yuza put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. And so there's that new cart, man, and now it starts to stumble. And Yuza is like, oh, I can't let the ark fall off of the cart. And he puts out his hand to steady the, the cart. And then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Yuza, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. Music, playing, celebration, everything, all of a sudden, uh, 
everything, everything's like, whoa, 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 what just happened? Here's this guy, and God strikes him dead. Seems a little harsh, doesn't it? You're like, whoa, man, what is going on? David certainly saw, thought so. We're going to see in the next verse that he'll become angry. And, and, you know, no doubt the desire of his heart, he's like, here we are, we're seeking you, and you kill a guy who's just trying to help. No, verse 7 says that God struck Uzzah for his error. And that word error, if you're a note taker, you could circle it nearby, you could write negligent, negligent fault. Because that's what happens here. See, what happens is they were transporting the ark of God on a cart. New or not, new cart smell or not, this was not God's will for the ark of God. And this is very important for you and me this morning. Because the thing is, is that God, when he had given the ark and when he had, had instructed the Israelites on, on how its design was to be and how its operation was to be, he had specifically said, Exodus 25, that the ark was designed to be carried. This was very clear in his word and Yuza should have known better. All of the people should have known better. And it's not in my notes, but just at a point of application here is that, you know, even if you and the majority of the people think this is the right method, that this is the right thing to do, at the moment, at the place, at that particular spot where it violates the express command of the Lord, let, let the whole world be wrong. Let the, let the whole world do whatever they're going to be doing. You be the one that says, no, this is what God's word says. Yuza should have known better. The ark was designed to be carried. There on the four corners of the ark, there were rings that had been, that had been built as part of this ark. And those rings were designed to, to have a staff placed through them. These, the, these poles placed through them. And the ark was designed to be carried. Numbers chapter 4 says that the ark was only to be carried by the Levites, the family of Kohath. Why? Because the ark was the burden of the Lord. And the burden of the Lord was to be carried on the hearts of the, of the Levites. Here's the application for you. We want the Lord's presence. We, we want to we be able to, to have the Lord at the center of our worship. And I pray that's your heart. It certainly was David's heart. But it's not something you drive it, it, it's not something that, that you engineer. It's something that you carry. See, I wonder how much of our, of our service is really in the energy of the flesh. Alan Redpath said this. I'll put the quote on the screen for you. He said, so often we put forth our hands, but not our hearts. We put forth our hands to the work of the Lord, but somehow our hearts have never really gotten under the burden of the Lord and begun like the Levites to carry it. I think about Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7. He says, this verse haunts me. He said, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And I want you to picture, I mean, we could call it irony, but that, that's, that's too tame of word. How about just tr- the tragedy? Of the fact that Yuza died 
as, as he's, you know, he, he's dying under the judgment of God, and he's right beside the mercy seat of Christ. And he's stricken dead. See, God doesn't want to be thrown on our cart. God doesn't want to adjust to our program. God doesn't want to adjust to our plans or to, to, to work around our agenda. God says, I'll be with you and I will take care of every victory. This is what God says. This is what he promises. I will be with you and I will take care of every victory. But there's one thing, Christian, that you have to carry. And that's Jesus and his work of atonement for you. And you have to carry that. That there's a broken law. And there's a holy God. And there's the blood of the Lamb. God would say, if you want my presence, it's always predicated on that burden. If you want my presence in your life, it's, it's not predicated on you putting God on your cart and driving God. It's entirely predicated on, on you just coming to the mercy seat of Christ and, and casting all of your cares on Him. That there's a God in heaven who loves you. And He loves you so much that He gave His Son. And everything that you will do, your entire worship of Him, your entire life. And this is not just a salvation moment. This is the, mo- this is the moment of a lifetime that, that <clears throat> my worship and my approaching to God is always through Jesus Christ. God's mercy embodied in His Son given for our sins. And we come to His mercy seat and we worship Him and we glorify Him for who He is because I have broken the law. And because there is a holy God. And because the Bible says that no flesh can glory in His presence. I can't ever get away from the fact that I have to come to God and I need to come to His mercy seat. And that I'm to bear that burden. I'm not to place it on my cart and drive it. And men like Yuza, they want to drive God on their terms. They want to put God on their cart. I've said so often, a lot of times we treat God like he's some spare tire in the trunk. And and I live my life, I just live like hell, and I expect that I'm going to be able to, to enjoy heaven. And then all of a sudden, you know, I, 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 my cart stumbles and I'm like, oh man, better take Jesus out of the trunk, you know. And I'm not carrying that burden. And men like Yuza, they want to drive God on their terms. I think about Peter. And there in, in Matthew's gospel, gospel, Matthew chapter 16, and Jesus is telling his disciples, preparing them, look, I'm, I'm going to the cross. And Peter takes him aside and he rebukes him. Why? Because God's plan and his purposes and his cross was contrary to what Peter wanted, was contrary to what Peter expected. Peter wanted to put Jesus on his cart. And so he wants to take Jesus aside and rebuke him for having the audacity to go to the cross and die for the sins of all mankind. And you know what Jesus says to Peter in that moment. He's like, get behind me, Satan. Because you're not mindful of the things of God. You're mindful of the things of man. What are you mindful of this morning? Are you mindful of the things of God? Or are you mindful of the things of man? Are you, are you approaching God and coming on the basis of everything is predicated on me, approaching you in the mercy seat of, of Christ, God? My entire worship is centered around you being properly on your throne. Not throwing 
the Lord on your cart and saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drive this thing. I'm going to steer you where you need to go, God. I'll tell you. You want to know? Just ask, God. I'll tell you. I'll tell you exactly what you need to do. And how often do we do that? We, we presume to, to, you know, prescribe our will on events. So Peter rebukes Jesus. This is exactly what David does here. Verse 8 says, And David became angry <clears throat> because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. Now, he calls the name Perez Uzzah. What that means, it means breach. It means break of Uzzah. And here's the idea. The idea is that God broke through against Uzzah because he wanted to put God on his cart and he wanted to put his hand forth and he wanted to dictate and steady and, and so on and exercise that kind of control. And so, so David, he's angry and he, this is his thing. He's, he's lamenting. He's, I'm going to call this place, you know, the, uh, the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. Now, if you remember last chapter, David named another place a very similar name. They had victory against the Philistines, and David named that place Baal Parism, which means the Lord of the Breaks. And, and the idea was that God broke through against their enemies. Now, David was fine as long as the Lord's outbreaks were against his enemies. But now he's mad at God. Why? Well, because God has broken through against his men. God has broken through against his plan. Let's just let that hang right there for a minute. Let's just kind of cook on that. Are you angry at God? Because he's broken through against your men, against your plans. So David's angry. Brings us to David's mistake, 2 Samuel 6. We pick it up again in verse 9. David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me. And so David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David, but David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. Now what's going on here? Well, it starts off saying David, yes, he was angry. But it also says that he was afraid of the Lord that day. And, and you got to understand what this means. When it says he's afraid of the Lord, it, 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 I'll t- I won't tell you what it doesn't mean. I'll tell you what it does mean. What it does mean is that he had a reverential fear of God. This is a healthy kind of fear. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. It says elsewhere that the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And, and what is wisdom? It's knowledge skillfully applied. And, and it's a good thing. When you live your life, it's a good thing for you every once in a while to be reminded, and more often than not, of just the fact that God is a consuming fire. That, that His eyes are everywhere. That, that there's nothing that you can say, there's nothing you can do. Hey, there's nothing even that you can't think that God doesn't already know about. 
And God is holy and he's righteous. And he's pure. He says, who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Do you have clean hands and a pure heart? I know I don't always. And so it's a healthy thing for us to have a fear of the Lord. Why? Because it's the beginning of wisdom and it's the beginning of knowledge. If I'm fearful of God, then what I recognize is that you're high, you're holy, you're right, you're pure. I'm none of those things on my best day. And God willing, what it does is it drives me to say, how am I living? What am I doing? Am I living a life that is, that is, that is pleasing to Him? Because the Bible says that we will give an account to God. That there's coming a day when everyone, man, woman, child, will stand before the Lord. And we're going to give an account. And so David has this fear of God and, and this reverential fear of God. And so what happens then is that when God struck down David's plan to bring the ark up, David at this moment, he has a choice. And yeah, he's angry because it's like, oh, for crying out loud, I had the right motive. My motive was good, and I just wanted to bring you as the center of everything, and you wrecked my plans, and you killed this guy. And now, I mean, I look like a fool in front of all of my people. And here this has happened. And so David's got a choice because the last half of Proverbs 1-7 says, fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs is filled with, hey, the Lord chastens and fools rebel against it. Fools won't listen to it. But wise men, wise women, when they're chastened, they will, in fearful reflection, they'll be able to say, God, what's going on here? Maybe you today. Maybe you need a little fearful reflection in your life. And so David's got a choice. Is he going to despise the wisdom and the instruction of God, or is he going to humble himself and pray? And David chose the latter. And we see that manifested in several things. Verse 9, it says, uh, basically, David, David cries out, how can the ark come to me? He hasn't, he hasn't changed his desire to have the presence of God. He, he went about doing this. God struck Uzzah dead. And, and it's like, whoa, wait a minute. I'm not getting the presence of God here. And so really what this is, this is a prayer on David's part. I still desire the presence of God. And, I, and, and what I've done has displeased God, and I don't have the presence of God. And so there's this prayerful attitude, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? In verse 10, we see that David stopped what he was doing. He just stopped right there. You know, it, 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 it tells us there, David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David, but he took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. He's like, oh, I'm not taking one more step because clearly I'm going in the wrong direction. Are you going in the wrong direction today? Because David just, he stops. He's like, clearly I, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but when God strikes somebody dead, I'm not going in the right direction here. And so he stops what he's doing. And verse 11 and 12 tells us that he observed that the problem was with him and not with God. How do I know that? Well, what happens is the, the, the ark goes to the house of Obed-Edom. And the next two verses says that God starts blessing Obed-Edom abundantly. And the word comes to David, hey, Obed-Edom, his whole house, they're being completely blessed because the ark of God. And you know, David's sitting there going, my guy's killed, his house is being blessed. And God's like up there in heaven saying, 
hey, uh, do I have to write it in the sky that the problem's not with me, that the problem's not with my ark, with my presence, David, the problem's with you. The problem's with you. And I'm blessing this guy over here, but I'm not blessing you. And you need to wake up and take a good long look at your life. You need to take a walk with this. And the text makes it clear it's three months. David's taken a walk with this. And we get to verse 12, and what's it say? It says, now it was told David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went, and he brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And you're like, wait a minute. Something seems to be missing there. What, what, I mean, all of a sudden, he's got all this problem, and now all of a sudden, oh, God's blessing him. Well, now I'm going to go get it and take it up, and now all of a sudden, he's blessed. What happened? First Chronicles 15 is what happened. Turn over there real quick. It's to the right. It's a little bit. First Chronicles 15 here gives us a little background story. Basically, you go through the, the, the first 12 verses, and then it's explaining, you know, how, you know, everything was going on. David built houses for himself and so on. He prepared a place for the ark of God, and he pitched a tent for it. The temple hasn't been, been, been built yet and so on. And David said, verse 2, no one may carry the ark of God but the Levites. For the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of God and to minister before him forever. Now, why does David know this now and he didn't know it back then? Because he read his Bible. That's what happened. This whole thing went down and what David did was he said, clearly the problem's with me, it's not with God. And he goes back to the scriptures. Now skip down to verse 13. Here's what he says to the priests as he gets them all assembled, saying, you're going to carry the ark of God and so on and so forth. He says, for because you did not do it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not consult him about the proper order. David read his Bible. He discovered, I was in sin. Priests, you were in sin. We should have known better. We had the right motive. We exercised the wrong method. And we should have known better. And that's why God didn't bless it. And in your life today, maybe you desire to have the presence of God in your life. But maybe you've been like Yuza experiencing, like David experiencing. Your efforts aren't necessarily met with the Lord's blessing and provision. And I would challenge you and I would encourage you. Hey, listen, are you guilty of throwing the Lord on your new cart with that new cart smell? And God, you'd be a wonderful addition to my kingdom. Jesus, I could use a handy guy like you. I mean, I could use a little patience. I could use a little peace. I could use a little provision, some blessing in my business. Hey, bless it, God. God's like, I ain't getting on your cart. I'm not driving on that thing. Hey, here's the thing. How about you carry me? How about you place me on the throne of your heart? So David met the Lord. He studied the scriptures. He recognized the error of his ways. What's the result? Well, this is where we get to. We see 
back in 2 Samuel chapter 6, David's music. Chapter 6, verse 14 continues. Well, we'll pick it up in 13. And and so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Now, this doesn't mean that he did this every six paces, uh, you know, all the way into Jerusalem. What it means is is that David said, look, I read my Bible, and uh, God, I think that this is where we made our error. This This is where we went off track. So, God, we're making corrective steps. And, and now, okay, I've gone six paces, you know, the number of man, you know. I've gone six paces. Okay, and now I'm going to stop and I'm going to make sacrifices. Lord, is what I'm doing well-pleasing to you? Not a bad idea there, you know. You decide, hey, I've gotten off track. I read my Bible. I think I know where in the area I'm sitting. I think I'm going to go in this direction. Just check in. God, is this cool? Because I'm worshiping you. I, my desire is to place you on the center of the throne of my heart. And so they stop there and they sacrifice Evidently, the sacrifice is received from God. Everything's awesome. Verse 14, then David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. In other words, what he's done here is he's taken off his royal robes. He's not naked. His wife, Michael, is going to say something here disparaging to him in a few verses and, and, and you know, say something that kind of makes it sound like he's dancing naked in his chonies in front of everybody. That's not what it is. That, that he, what he's done is he's taken off of his, all of his royal attire. Why? Because he's in the presence of royalty. He's humbled himself before the Lord. He's dressed like everybody else. He's dancing with all his might. He's wearing this linen ephod. He's worshiping God. Verse 15, so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of trumpet. And now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling around before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. We're going to come back to that. And so they brought the ark of the Lord, and they set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. And then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts, and then he distributed among all the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both women and men, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a, and a cake of raisins. And so all the people departed, everyone to his house. This, this is a feast. This is glorious celebration. <clears throat> Just this wonderful picture. Really, a picture of, 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 of the marriage supper of the Lamb. You know, the Bible says that when we get to heaven, there's just going to be this wonderful feast. Where we are, we are enjoying the presence of God. We place Jesus in his rightful place. And now there's feasting, there's rejoicing, there's, there's glory, there's just this beautiful, uninhibited worship of God. Can I go off on a tangent here and just say this, that when we worship the Lord together as a body of believers, that's what this place should be. When we worship God, it should just be this glorious, uninhibited thing. You know what happens when you go to a, you know, a men's retreat? Ladies, when you go to a, a women's retreat, the worship just kind of goes up a notch, doesn't it? Sort of our, our self-consciousness kind of goes away. I know for guys, it's like, hey, I'm just with the guys here. And I'm worshiping the Lord. So I sing, you know, we all we sing three times louder at a men's retreat. There's this attitude of expectancy. Listen, our worship should be like this. I encourage you as we worship the Lord Jesus here on Sunday, just let it be uninhibited, just a glorious thing. 
Yes, the Bible says we're to do everything decently and in order. I don't want you bringing your tambourines to church next week and playing them or your ribbons and dancing around. You know, we are, you know, we have to be understanding that people come into our church services that don't know the Lord and we don't want to, you know, we, we do want to be mindful and not weirding people out. But listen, we also need to be mindful of the fact that God has done a great thing for us. Is he loves us and he's given his son for us and he's given you the hope of eternal life. That he promises to wash all of your sins clean, to cast your sins as far as the east is from the west. That you can enjoy the presence of God today, the fellowship with his people. Do you have the hope of eternal life? There's nothing that can take that away from you. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God, Romans chapter 8 says. Nothing. And so when we worship God, it should be this picture. It should be just this glorious, God, you're wonderful, you're awesome. And I'm raising my hands, I'm raising my heart, I'm singing out to you, I'm glorifying you. It's not a production, it's just the outcry of a grateful heart. This is the song of David's heart. This is his music. I've brought Jesus, I've brought the Lord into his rightful place. And now the presence of the Lord is here in his tabernacle. Worshiping, glorifying. feasting, absolutely beautiful. The psalmist said, blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. Romans chapter 4, yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of sins. The psalmist says, in his presence is fullness of joy, all these things embodied in David's worship. Well, finally, we look at David's missus, all right, his wife, the old ball and chain. Let's check her out here. (laughs) I'm kidding. All right, verse 20, then David returned to bless his household. Do you know how this is? Ladies, you go on a women's retreat, you come home on the the mountaintop. You want to go home and bless your household, you're filled with the Spirit. You have a men's retreat, the same thing, and you come walking in the door, And what happens is a bomb went off in your house and your kids are covered in peanut butter and your husband's sitting there, like got the football game on, like nothing's going on. You're like, what just happened? You went from being on the mountaintop in the spirit of God and now you are just in the darkest pit. You're like, what just happened to me? I open the door. Hello, Satan. Here you are. Oh my gosh, it's just horrible. And so David comes home, he's got this attitude, I'm going to bless my household. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, notice it doesn't even say his wife, says the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and she said, how glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Oh, weren't you? She's just sarcastic as any. She's just dripping off her. Oh, how glorious, how noble were you today? She's just despising him in his heart. So David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. He says, hey, your dad, Loserville, you... You know, you're his daughter of a big fat loser, and God rejected the old Mr., you know, wife beater, boxer wearing, kind of lazy loser dad. 
I mean, he just goes right for it, right? He's just, a, you ever been there in your, in your house? You know, you just kind of, it just goes dirty real quick, you know? You just low blow after low blow. It's like, oh yeah, well, your dad's an alcoholic. So how about that, you know? And, and, and so here, David just goes right for the jugular. He's like, hey, I is before the Lord. And by the way, he chose me. He didn't choose your loser dad. To appoint me to rule over the people of Israel, over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord, and I will be even more undignified than this. And I will be humble in my own sight. Hey, you're, you, you don't like the fact that I took my royal robes off? You want me to be all about image? and I am none of that. I'm going to worship God. I'll take it all out. But as for the maidservants of whom you've spoken of, because she says, oh, you were undignified before all the maidservants. He says, by them I will be held in high honor. Well, that's something horrible to say to your wife right there, right? Something pretty low to say to your wife. Oh, yeah, yeah. you know what? Any woman would be proud to have me as their husband, you know, kind of thing. Your wife's like, well, I I didn't hate you before, boy. Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Now, does this mean that God cursed her, cursed her womb? Maybe. Does it mean, and I kind of am persuaded that this is the thing that David's like, I'm done with you. Uh, you know, you're, our relationship's over here. Never to go into her again. Yeah, that, that's probably what happened here. How do we wrap all this together? The fact of the matter is, is that God wants to be the center of the worship of your life. He doesn't want you driving things. He wants you to place God... In his place, he wants you to carry the burden of the Lord. And I guess we could extrapolate from David's experience with Michael that, you know, there are going to be times when you're challenged with that, when people will despise your faith, even your own spouse. Maybe some of the greatest persecution that you experience is is in your home. When you try and draw close to God, maybe you're sabotaged in that. Keep Jesus on the center of your throne. Keep worshiping Him. Father, we come to You this morning thanking You that You are good and You're glorious. That in Your presence is fullness of joy and the joy that we have is because our sins have been forgiven. We have the hope of eternal life. And we don't have to worry about driving our life. We don't have to be stressed and straining like Martha, being worried and anxious about a bunch of different things. But rather we can be more like Mary that's just going to sit at your feet, placing you at the center of, of our lives. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to do that today. And right now I want to pray for anybody here today.